Lesson 12 for December 15 to 21, Church Organisation and Unity. Sabbath afternoon, December 15. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series of lessons on unity and how we've seen your church and your people operate in the past. And as we uh, look at what your word has to say to us this week, we pray that your desires will be our desires and that as Jesus was a servant, we will become your servant as well. Bless us. May your Holy Spirit guide our thoughts and our direction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Let's read that again, Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are Protestant Christians who believe that salvation is through faith alone in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for humanity. We do not need a church or a church hierarchy in order to receive the benefits of what Christ has done for us. What we get from Christ, we get directly from him as our substitute on the cross and as our mediating high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Nevertheless, the church is God's creation, and God placed it here for us, not as a means of salvation, but as a vehicle to help us express and make manifest that salvation to the world. The church is an organization that Jesus created for the spreading of the gospel into the world. Organization is important insofar as it solidifies and enables the mission of the church. Without a church organization, Jesus' saving message could not as effectively be communicated to others. Church leaders are important too, in that they foster unity and exemplify the example of Jesus. This week, we study why church organization is crucial for mission and how it can foster church unity. Sunday, December 16, Christ the Head of the Church. As we have seen already in an earlier lesson, in the New Testament the Church is represented by the metaphor of a body. The Church is the body of Christ. This metaphor alludes to several aspects of the Church and the relationship between Christ and His people. As the body of Christ, the church depends on him for its very existence. He is the head and the source of the life of the church, as we read in Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And Ephesians 1.22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. 
Without him, there would be no church. The church also derives its identity from Christ, for he is the source and the foundation and the originator of its belief and teachings. Yet, the church is more than these things, as crucial as they are to its identity. It is Christ and his word, as revealed in Scripture, that determine what the church is. Thus, the church derives its identity and significance from Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 to 27, Paul uses the relationship between Christ and his church to illustrate the kind of relationship there should be between husband and wife. What are the key ideas of this relationship between Christ and his church? Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Although we may be hesitant with the concept of submission because of how leaders in the centuries past have abused it, the church is nonetheless to be subject to the head, Christ, and is subject to his authority. Our acknowledgement of Christ as the head of the church helps us remember to whom our ultimate allegiance must belong, and that is the Lord himself and to no one else. The church is to be organised, but that organisation always must be subordinate to the authority of Jesus, the true leader of our church. In The Desire of Ages, page 414, we read, The church is built upon Christ as its foundation. It is to obey Christ as its head. It is not to depend upon man or be controlled by man. Many claim that a position of trust in the church gives them authority to dictate what other men shall believe and what they shall do. This claim God does not sanction. The Saviour declares, All ye are brethren, all are exposed to temptation and are liable to error. Upon no finite being can we depend for guidance. The rock of faith is the living presence of Christ in the church. Upon this, the weakest may depend, and those who think themselves the strongest will prove to be the weakest, unless they make Christ their efficiency. And so to finish today, how can we learn to depend upon Christ and not upon any finite being, as it is so easy to do? Monday, December 17, Servant Leadership During his ministry with his disciples, Jesus repeatedly experienced moments when he probably felt exasperated by the envy for power they seemed to have. 
The apostles appeared to be anxious to become powerful leaders of Jesus' kingdom. Let's read about that in Mark 9, verses 33 and 34. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. And Luke 9, and verse 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Even as the disciples were eating the Last Supper together, these feelings of domination and superiority were palpably felt among them. Luke 22 and verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Question. During one such occasion, Jesus clearly expressed his thoughts regarding spiritual leadership among his people. What principles of leadership do we learn from Jesus' exhortation in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28? How can we manifest this principle in our lives, and especially in our churches? Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Professor Darius Jankowitz, a leading Adventist theologian, writes in Serving Like Jesus, Authority in God's Church, published in the Adventist Review, March 13, 2014, and on page 18. In this concise passage, Jesus presents us with two models of authority. The first is the Roman idea of authority. In this model, the elite stand hierarchically over others. They have the power to make decisions and expect submission from those below them. Jesus clearly rejected this model of authority when he stated, Not so with you. Instead, he presented the disciples with a breathtakingly new model of authority, a thorough rejection or reversal of the hierarchical model with which they were familiar. End of quote. The concept of authority that Jesus presents in this story is based on two key words, servant or dikonos and slave, doulos. In some Bible versions, the first word servant is often translated minister and the second servant or bondservant. Both words thus lose much of the force of Jesus' intent. Although Jesus did not wish to abolish all authority structures, what he wished to emphasize is that church leaders must first of all be servants and slaves of God's people. Their positions are not to exercise authority over people or to dominate them or to give themselves prestige and reputation. As Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 550, Christ was establishing a kingdom on different principles. He called men not to authority, but to service, the strong to bear the infirmities of the weak. Power, position, talent, education placed their possessor under the greater obligation to serve his fellows. 
and so to finish today. Read John chapter 13 verses 1 through to 20. What example of leadership did Jesus give his disciples? What is Jesus still trying to teach us in this passage? How can we manifest the principle here in all our actions with others, in and outside of the church? John 13, beginning at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of the Scriptures. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Tuesday, December 18. Preserving Church Unity. Question. Read Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 and Titus 1, 9. According to Paul's counsels to Timothy and Titus, what crucial tasks are the responsibility of a faithful church leader and elder? 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And Titus 1, verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Notice how much emphasis Paul puts on keeping the doctrines and teachings pure. This is crucial for unity, especially because one could argue that, more than anything else, our teachings are what unify our church. Again, as Adventists, as people from so many different walks of life, cultures and backgrounds, our unity in Christ is found in our understanding of the truth that Christ has given. If we get confused on these teachings, then only chaos and division will come, especially as we near the end. Second Timothy 4 verses 1 to 4 reads, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. With these words, Paul focuses his inspired thoughts on the second coming of Jesus, and on the Day of Judgment. The Apostle uses all his God-given authority to give Timothy this important counsel. 1 Timothy 1 verse 1 is where we see his authority, and that reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. In the context of the last days, with false teachings abounding and immorality rising, Timothy is to preach the word of God, that is, the ministry he has been called to. In part of his teaching ministry, Timothy is to convince, rebuke and exhort. These verbs are reminiscent of the guidance given by the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Clearly, Timothy's work is to follow, teach and implement what he finds in the scriptures and to do so with long-suffering and patience. Harsh and severe rebukes rarely bring a sinner to Christ. By following what Paul wrote, and following it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and with a servant-leader attitude, Timothy would be a powerfully unifying force in the Church. And so to finish the day, what are practical ways that we can help our Church leaders maintain unity in the Church? How can we make sure we are always a force for unity as opposed to disunity, even amid disputes? Wednesday, December 19, Church Discipline 
One of the main issues of church organisation is to deal with discipline. How discipline helps to preserve church unity is sometimes a touchy subject and easily may be misunderstood. But, from a biblical perspective, church discipline centres on two important areas, preserving purity of doctrine and preserving purity of church life and practice. As we already have seen, the New Testament maintains the importance of preserving the purity of biblical teaching in the wake of apostasy and false teaching, particularly at the end time. The same goes for preserving the respectability of the community by guarding against immorality, dishonesty and depravity. For this reason, the scripture is spoken of as profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. Question, read Matthew 16.19 and chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. What principles did Jesus give to the church regarding discipline and admonishing those who are at fault? First of all, Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen... Take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to even listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. The Bible supports the concept of discipline and of our accountability to each other in our spiritual and moral lives. In fact, one of the distinguishing marks of the church is its holiness or separation from the world. We certainly find in the Bible many examples of difficult situations that required the church to act decisively against immoral behaviours. Moral standards must be maintained in the church. Question, what principles do these passages teach us to follow when addressing difficult issues in the church? Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. And Galatians 6 
verses 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We cannot deny the biblical teaching about the need of church discipline. We cannot be faithful to the word without it. But notice the redemptive quality in many of these admonitions. As much as possible, discipline should be redemptive. We need to remember, too, that we are all sinners and that we all need grace. Thus, when we administer discipline, we need to do it in humility and with a keen awareness of our own failings as well. And so to finish today, in our dealings with those who err, how can we learn to act with an attitude of redemption more than of punishment? Thursday, December 20, Organising for Mission As we have seen throughout this quarter, and which bears repeating, as a church we have been organised and unified for mission, for outreach. We are not just a social club for like-minded people to get together and affirm each other in what we believe, though that can be important as well. We have been brought together to share with the world the truth that we, ourselves, have come to love. In Matthew 28:18 to 20 Jesus gave his disciples final instructions for their mission to the world. Question, identify the key words of Jesus' command. What do these words imply for the church today? Matthew 28, beginning at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus' great commission to his disciples included four key verbs— Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. According to the Greek grammar of these verses, the main verb is to make disciples, and the other three verbs indicate how this can be done. Disciples are made when believers go to all nations to preach the gospel, baptize people, and teach them to observe what Jesus said. As the church responds to this commission, God's kingdom is enlarged and more and more people of all nations join the ranks of those who accept Jesus as Saviour. Their obedience to Jesus' commands to be baptised and to observe his teachings creates a new universal family. The new disciples also are assured of the presence of Jesus every day as they themselves make more disciples. The presence of Jesus is a promise of the presence of God. 
The Gospel of Matthew begins with the announcement that the birth of Jesus is about God with us in Matthew 1.23 and ends with the promise of Jesus' continued presence with us until his second coming. As we read in Acts of the Apostles, page 29, Christ did not tell his disciples that their work would be easy. He assured them that he would be with them and that if they would go forth in faith, they should move under the shield of omnipotence. He bade them be brave and strong, for one mightier than angels would be in their ranks, the general of the armies of heaven. He made full provision for the prosecution of their work and took upon himself the responsibility of its success. So long as they obeyed his word and worked in connection with him, they could not fail. So, to finish the day, reflect on the meaning of the promise of Jesus' presence with his people until his second coming. How should the reality of this promise impact us as we seek to fulfil the commission that we have been given by Jesus? Friday, December 21. From the book Our Church Today, What It Is and Can Be, published by the Review and Herald in 1980, page 106, by G. Arthur Keogh, we read, Principles of good leadership apply in all forms of society, including the church. However, the leader in the church must be more than a leader. He must also be a servant. There is an apparent contradiction between being a leader and being a servant. How can one lead and serve at the same time? Does not the leader occupy a position of honour? Does he not command and expect others to obey him? How then does he occupy the lower position of being a servant, of receiving orders and fulfilling them? In order to resolve the paradox, we must look at Jesus. He supremely represented the principle of leadership that serves. His whole life was one of service, and at the same time he was the greatest leader the world has ever seen. End of quote. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. Dwell more on the idea of a servant leader. What, if any, examples can we find of this in the secular world? 2. Read again Matthew 20, 25 to 28. What does this tell us about how God understands the meaning of the word great, especially in verse 26, in contrast to how the word is understood by the world? Matthew 20, beginning at verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 3. If one of the tasks of church leaders is to preserve unity, what should we do when church leaders falter? 
when their humanity prevents them from being perfect examples. 4. Why is it so important that we administer church discipline with a spirit of graciousness and love toward the ones who are erring? Why should Matthew 7.12 always be foremost in our minds during the process? Matthew 7.12 So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. So to summarise this week's lesson, good church organisation is essential to the mission of the church and to the unity of believers. Christ is the head of the church, and church leaders are to follow his example as they lead the people of God. Unity is preserved through the faithful teaching of the word of God and by living in faithfulness to that word. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled My Wife Left Church and it's by Daniel Gatan. My wife has stopped attending the Seventh-day Adventist Church but I have not given up hope. Here's why. During repressive communist times a woman in my home country, Romania learned about the Adventist Church and began to attend Sabbath services regularly. This infuriated her husband. Where are you going at the same time every Saturday? he asked. Honey, I'm going to the Adventist church, she said. I already know that, he snapped. You can keep going, but on one condition, you cannot be baptised. I don't want to hear that you've been baptised or I'll kill you. As the woman read the Bible and learned more about Jesus, she became convicted that she needed to take a public stand for Jesus through baptism. Church members surrounded the newly baptised people after the Sabbath ceremony. They offered hugs and colourful flowers. Everyone was smiling, except for one woman. She wasn't sure how her husband would react. That afternoon, she found her husband in the front yard when she returned home with flowers in her arms. He was sitting at a wooden table with a sharp knife sticking out of the top. "'Where are the flowers from?' he asked. "'I was baptised today,' she replied. His face turned purple with rage. "'Did you not believe me when I told you that I would kill you if you were baptised?' he said, pulling the knife out of the tabletop. "'Get ready to die,' he said, and lunged at her. His wife fled to the back of the house, where the couple had a garden. Her husband caught up to her in the cornstalks. As he raised the knife over his head, the woman begged for one last wish, to pray. The husband agreed and watched as his wife knelt. He loomed over her as she spoke to God, holding the knife high above his head. Suddenly, the knife blade silently slid out of the handle and fell harmlessly to the ground. The man's face turned pale. His whole body began to tremble, and he fell to the ground beside the blade. His wife jumped to her feet and helped him up. Wordlessly, they went into the house. After some time, 
the husband was baptized. God changed his heart. If God can change this man's heart, I know he also can touch my wife's heart. I can trust in God even when all hope seems lost. And there's a photo here of Daniel Gatton, age 68, who is a retired construction worker from Pluska in Romania. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.